Well, the text this morning is a familiar text. Uh, We have the story here of Jesus turning the water into wine, as we've just read it. Uh, It is, of course, a sign. John will call it a sign, not a miracle, but a sign. And it's a significant one because it's the first of Jesus. It's his first sign that he performs. And so with this miracle, he begins his public ministry. His public ministry is starting with this very first miracle or sign. Yet the sign is not only significant because it's his first. Like so much of John's gospel, the story has a sense of mystery to it. There's a a lot of questions that we might ask as it relates to this story. We read it, it seems simple, but we still have these questions that lurk behind the the text. Uh, You might say that this miracle leaves us with more questions than answers. Who is this couple getting married? We don't know who they are. What is Mary, or the mother of Jesus, what is her relation to this couple? seems that she has a, a role here, a special role at the wedding. Does Jesus disrespect his mother by calling her woman? What does it mean for Jesus to say, my hour has not yet come? What does he mean by that? As a whole, what in the world does this sign teach me about what it looks like to live as a Christian today? What am I supposed to take away from this miracle? And so with the the significance of this miracle and its mysterious nature lingering in our minds, let, let us start then with the setting of the sign, the setting of the sign, verse Verses 1 and 2. John begins this verse, this, this uh, story, with a time stamp. He says, on the third day, on the third day. And so we have a clue at the very beginning that something significant is in store. What do I mean by that? Well, if we walk back through the chapter a little bit, look at verse 29. He says, the next day. Verse 35 says, the next day. Verse 43 says, the next day. I've kind of jumped over these in our previous messages. And then finally in chapter 2, verse 1, verse one, we have on the third day, on the third day. And so we discover that what John has been doing here in his opening chapter and in chapter 2 has given us the events of a full week. That's what's transpiring up to this point. And so with verse 29, we have the second day because it says the next day. And so verses 19 through 28 are the first day. The 29th would be the second day. Then verse 35 would be the third day, and verse 43 would be the, the, uh, the fourth day. And then on chapter 2, verse 1, we have on the third day, so three more days, which gives us, if you're following, a full week. And so chapter 2, verse 1 is the seventh day. Now, if you add to this the allusions from the book of Genesis that are contained in the very first verse, or the first verses of this, Uh, we have really kind of an echo of the creation week happening in this opening chapter of John. You recall chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And then here we have this first miracle on the seventh day, and we have all these allusions with the next day, the next day, the next day. I think at the very beginning, John intends that we associate this miracle with new life, with a new creation. And so it's on this seventh day that a wedding celebration is underway. Now, a Jewish wedding would, would have been the conclusion of a year-long engagement. We know it to be a betrothal period. You're probably familiar with that term. When the wedding time came, the, the bridegroom would, would lead a procession to the bride's house. 
The bride would travel with the groom back to his house where the wedding banquet would take place, and that could last up to an entire week. Not necessarily, but it could last up to a full week. Now, verse 1 tells us that the mother of Jesus was, was at this wedding, and even further, Jesus and the disciples were also invited to this wedding. So here we have the setting of Jesus' first miracle, a Jewish wedding in, in an obscure place in northern Palestine, Canaan of Galilee, with his mother and his disciples in attendance. Now, the fact that Jesus, his mother, and the disciples were invited to the same wedding suggests that this wedding was probably for some kind of relative or close friend, we might say. Her involvement in the wedding will also suggest this later as we, we move through the text. So having established the setting, let's get to the story, the story of the sign starting in verse 3. In verse 3, we discover that the wine ran out. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now we have to see this as a, as a pretty big deal. It's no small matter that a, the wine would run out uh, at a Jewish wedding. As I mentioned, the wedding celebration could last up to a week, and it was the financial responsibility of the groom to, to provide all of the, the sustenance for the wedding, especially the wine. Therefore, to run out of wine would have, would have been a great disgrace to this new married couple. Uh, there's even some cultural evidence that the, the, the bride's family could sue the groom because he didn't provide the needed resources for the wedding. So it could be the, the start of a financial you know, catastrophe right at the beginning of their wedding. Now, as we've noted, it's likely that Mary has some connection to this couple. We see this come through as she voices her concerns to Jesus. There's a great problem at this wedding banquet, the kind of problem that could stain this couple's wedding day and leave them, again, in financial ruin. Mary has nowhere to turn, and so what does she do? She turns to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, you and I know there are few events in life as significant as a wedding. This is one of the most grand events in all of life, especially among the poor. I mean, how many, you know, pictures do we have on our walls for our entire marriage, our entire lives, and they're often of our wedding. It's a very, very significant moment in our lives. We make fun of this in our day. We, we, we have the bridezilla, right, who, who just takes it to the, to the extreme. This is the bride that's so concerned with the details of the wedding that she turns into a monster. Now, I'm not saying that that's evidenced here, but it makes the point that that's how significant this event is. We overthink it, you might say. That's what the bridezilla does, at least. It speaks to the importance or the weight that we put into a wedding. Weddings are, are just as significant in Jesus' day, especially among poor people. This would have been all their resources wrapped up in this one uh, feast, this one banquet. And so in the opening verses here, all the planning and dreaming of, of this ideal wedding is dissolving into a nightmare when the wine runs out. There's great drama in Mary's words. They have no wine. It's a big deal. Now, there's no way for us to know exactly what Mary intended to communicate to Jesus. However, we do know that Mary understood that Jesus was special. 
There's no doubt about that. You remember she was greeted by an angel before his birth. I mean, that's a, that's a good start, that this is going to be a, a significant child. Not only that, but she conceived him while she was still a virgin. That's also a very big deal. She heard the words of Simeon when Jesus was presented at the temple. You remember that. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, he says, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Imagine hearing that about your son. All of this... And she had the daily experience of seeing Jesus increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke 2, 52. She knew that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. She knew it more than anyone. And so with these words, they have no wine, it's not unlikely that she believed, she thought that here might be the right time for Jesus to reveal to all who he was, because he hadn't up to this point. What better time than this, than this? In addition, there's no mention of Joseph. Joseph passes away at some point in the narrative uh, beyond the, the, the initial verses of Scripture here about Jesus' birth. Whenever Mary is mentioned, Joseph's never around. So we believe he, he passed at some point. So you can imagine that Jesus might have filled some of those fatherly roles as a young man. No doubt helping the family with his work as a carpenter. In this way, he might have been, it might have been quite natural for Mary to lean on Jesus for help. Tangible, physical aid. Now, the response that Jesus gives is one of those places where we have a lot of mystery in this text. Verse 4. Jesus responds, he says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We have to admit very, at the very beginning here that this, this sounds rude. It does. It sounds rude to us. It's cold. I can seldom think of a context in our day where I would speak that way and it would be received with love. Maybe you have that kind of relationship, but I don't. Right? The problem is the English language in the translation. There's, there's not really a way for us to, to capture the sense of what Jesus is saying here, because woman is a good translation. That, that's the right translation, but it doesn't really come across well in our context. And so the, the, if there's a way to capture this, the way I understand it in my study is that you might say something like, ma'am. That could be a good way to do it. Lady, uh, maybe not. But ma'am, I think, does kind of capture it. it. It retains some of the tenderness, although it doesn't entirely solve the problem. And so the greater issue is not really so much the translation, but the greater issue is why? Why would Jesus speak to his mother this way? Why would he say that? Why not just say mom? Well, Jesus is intending to do something here by addressing her this way with ma'am, we might say. I think the best answer here is that Jesus is marking out this moment. He's indicating that there's a new relationship 
They're entering into a new relation, a new relationship. She, she has laid a request at his feet, but before he acts, and he will, but before he does, he must help her see that he will no longer act under the authority, under her authority, or in response to her wishes. And so he's drawing a line between them. You, may, you might say the time of Mary's authority is over. Jesus is putting a barrier between them. He is saying that the, the, the interests of ministry have superseded the family. Again, there's a transition. His ministry is going to begin at this point. Here, you might say, Mary is losing a son. But thankfully, she's gaining a savior. And that's what's happening here. Jesus then adds, again, equally rude, what does this have to do with me? It sounds something like, what do you want me to do about it? That's what it sounds like. It's not my problem. Well, here we have to understand it's a little bit of a Hebrew idiom. It's an expression that's natural to the Hebrew ear, but very unnatural to our ears. It's rude. It sounds rude, but it really is not. But what it is, it, it is abrupt. And so it is an abrupt kind of response. Again, akin to this ma'am idea. Jesus is putting this barrier between him and his mother. The, the, the phrase is intended to, to put distance between the two parties. It's to ask, really, quite literally, what do you and I have in common? Although not mean-spirited, Don Carson calls the phrase a measured rebuke. It is a rebuke, but it's measured. He writes, We must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. You remember Luke 2.35 says regarding Jesus, this was to Mary, that a sword would pierce through Mary's soul. Maybe you remember that. Now, I believe that ultimately has to do with Jesus' death on the cross and that she would see his son die. She would see her son die. However, I think maybe there's something here to that as well, that even in the ministry that all of a sudden she really wouldn't have a son anymore. He would be different. Of course, he was different, but this barrier is up now and his ministry is starting to begin. Carson adds again, he says, she had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary things, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as the family provider. But now, now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinate to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. I was thinking of Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. As I was reviewing this this morning, you remember this. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him, to speak to Jesus. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus is making a similar statement. He stretched out his hand towards his disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I'm not sure how his mom felt about that. But this was the reality. Things were different in this family. Jesus has another comment he adds. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, whenever Jesus speaks of his hour in the gospel, he always has in mind his death on the cross. He always has in mind that. And so here we have this interesting statement about his hour not coming, the very beginning of his ministry. John chapter 7, verse 30. I'll give you a couple verses here. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12, verse 33 is another spot. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If you go back up to verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I, I come to this hour. And then verse, chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So when, he, when Jesus speaks of his hour coming, he's speaking about his death and his coming exaltation. So what is, the, what is John doing here? What is Jesus doing here by giving us this, this little phrase, my hour has not yet come? Maybe you've heard of storytellers that use prolepsis, forthtelling. Remember in Dickens' you know, Christmas Carol, you, we have that image of, of Scrooge, and Scrooge sees the future, gives us that clue. When he, he sees his death, and he sees how people take comfort in his death. And it guides kind of the story, the narrative. Well, in the same way, we have this, this little, uh, it's wetting our appetite, it's like, it's, it's designed to make us ask this question, what is Jesus talking about? It makes, it, it, the hope is that we would press on and we would keep reading to discover, what is this hour? Who is this Jesus? Mary responds, verse 5. We don't have a lot of help here. It's still a mystery in her response, trying to unpack this and understand this. What does she says? His mother said, verse 5, to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Okay? I wish I could hear her tone. Uh, is she upset? I'm not sure. I will say this, that when we interpreted narr narrative passages like this here in John, that it's important to, to recognize patterns. It's important to recognize patterns. And so, where we see a pattern of faithfulness, uh, we see characters that are, that are faithful and they're receiving blessing, it's right for us to believe that those, ca those characters are acting in accordance with God's will. So when you think about the character of Mary in the narratives, in the, throughout the gospel narrative, Mary is always portrayed as entirely faithful and blessed. She's always portrayed that way. And so I don't have any reason to believe that Mary here is acting, you know, uh, that she's being snide or disrespectful, that she's pushing back against this. I don't think that's an appropriate interpretation here. Rather, 
I think, in light of Jesus' attempt to put some distance between himself and his mother, I believe that her words are an example of faith. And in some ways, she's receiving this courteous rebuke. She's responding in faith. She's, she, she entered the story as a mother seeking help from her son, but she's going to exit the story as a believer seeking help in a Savior. Mary has no idea what Jesus will do, but she's giving the matter over to him, and she's trusting him with the matter. Now, we know what happens next. The, the, the narrative kind of goes quick at this point. Jesus commands the servants to fill the stone water jars with water. He tells them to fill them to the brim. The implication in that is that there's no room for anything else. Once those stone jars are filled, Jesus commands the servants to, to draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast, or the head waiter, when he takes that wine... When he tastes it, excuse me, he calls for the bridegroom and he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first, this is verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I'm not sure if, that's a criti if he's criticizing him. Why did you do that? Or if he's commending him. Doesn't say. It's just an, it's a universally accepted truth. It's axiomatic. This is how you do feasts. You put the best offerings at the beginning of the feast when the palate is most sensitive. That's what you do. Once the party has begun and the guests are somewhat affected by the consumption of drink, well, then you produce the cheap wine. Makes sense. I think the logic is there. This bridegroom, however, has kept the good wine until the end. So we have the very first miracle of Jesus. We should, of course, mention that filling the jars to the brim rules out any possibility of a trick. There's no magic here. And we have no small amount of wine. In fact, we have approximately 150 gallons of wine, which is something like 2,400 servings of wine. I don't plan feasts or banquets. Maybe Dennis Penner could help us here, but that seems like a lot of servings. Now, I've already mentioned some of the allusions to the, the creation narrative in this opening chapter here, or found at the beginning of the gospel. You recall the way that John begins that go the, the gospel, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, again, created. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. You have life that's a part of this original creation. In the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, light and darkness. All these themes are there from creation. Also, the series of days. When we read the creation narrative, you know, day one, day two, day three. Here we have the next day, the next day, the next day. It may be that the nature of this miracle is helping us to see this theme of a new beginning. In fact, this miracle is none other than a spectacular act of creation. It's really what it is. Jesus didn't speed up the process of winemaking. Jesus did this without grapes, without sun, and without time. Yet, and very interestingly, such a miracle has the appearance of age. I think that's fascinating. 
that, that God has the power to do that. Wine does, in fact, come, with, come from grapes that are grown and matured and picked and pressed over a period of time. All that is true. It's necessity. While it may have taken less than a minute for the servants to move the water from the jar to the head waiter's lips, the wine reflected a season of growth, a season of harvest, just like that. This no doubt proves that Jesus is the master over the forces of nature. One thing the sign surely demonstrates is that our Jesus has at his disposal unlimited power to do whatever he chooses. When earthly resources are deficient, he supplies. In spite of the world's poverty and need, Jesus has a great reservoir of power. Immediately and without a moment's delay, the needs of men are supplied. And not halfway, but completely, perfectly. God is always able to open the treasure chest of helplessness. And not to supply our intangible needs, although he does. In this very passage, he supplies tangible needs. He touched the lives of a young couple by meeting a very tangible need. And he took the very first step towards his coming, toward that coming hour, the most significant hour in the history of the universe, at a wedding in an obscure place in northern Israel, Canaan of Galilee. It all started in this place. And even the miracle itself is, there's a, there's a kind of humility that it's done with. It's, it's a quiet dignity that's on display when Jesus says, draw some out. There's no magic, no abracadabra, no smoke and lights. I like to think that Scripture demonstrates a kind of pattern here as well. That God, no doubt, is so big... He is so big and so capable that he need not always display his power with smoke and lights. Sometimes he does. Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel. Sure, he displays his power in magnificent ways like that. But most often, our Lord is at work in the quiet places of our lives. I think Nathaniel learned this just three days prior you remember it was there under that canopy of the fig tree that he declared, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Why? Because he saw him under the fig tree. There he was, worshiping his Lord in that quiet place all alone, and he knew that God was there. It may be the case that you believe your circumstances are somehow outside of God's concern that God is concerned with spiritual matters or church business, that God only cares about evangelism and discipleship and doctrine, although he does care about those things very much. That is not only, those aren't, those aren't the only things that he is concerned with. God is concerned with a young couple who ran out of wine in an in a obscure place in northern Palestine. Likewise, God is concerned with our needs. 
You remember Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, that very familiar passage of Scripture. Paul writes, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. There's a lot of prepositional phrases there. I'll just say it this way. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, let your requests be known to God. Even the little things. God cares about those things. And Paul continues, finally, brothers, whatever is true, that is true, that he cares about those little things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Here's what's true. God is so majestic to be met in the mundane. I know I'm turning a phrase there, but I think you can follow it. God is so majestic to be met in the mundane. We too often believe that God is too majestic to be met in the mundane, but the opposite is true. God is so majestic to be met in the mundane. J.C. Ryle has written, It is a comfortable thought that the same almighty power of will which our Lord here displayed is still exercised on behalf of his believing people. They have no need of his bodily presence to maintain their cause. They have no reason to be cast down because they cannot see him with their eyes interceding for them or touch him with their hands that they may cling to him for safety. If he wills their salvation and the daily supply of their spiritual need, they are as safe and well provided for as if they saw him standing by them. I believe that's true. I believe Scripture bears that out. My point is simply that we have no reason to think Christ won't come to our aid as he did for these newlyweds. Although he may not turn water into wine, he is ever here, as the author of Hebrews says, to help us hold fast the confession of our hope and to stir up one another to love and good deeds. He's there to help us do those things. Or as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, that he can grant us to be strengthened with power in our inner being, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, that we would comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. All of that is true. It's spiritual. But he says also quite simply that he can give us this day our daily bread. He does all of that. God is so majestic to be met in the mundane. Now we've looked at the setting. We've seen the story of the sign. Now let's see the significance of the sign in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It would have been a hundred years, well, it would have been hundreds of years, excuse me, since the Jews would have seen a miracle from God. Here we discover that as a result of this first sign, Jesus manifested his glory. He revealed 
his glory. Remember chapter 1, verse 14. Glory as of the only Son, the unique Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. He put his deity on display with this miracle. Although the miracles are signs of Jesus display the greatest compassion he has for people, helping the lame walk and the blind to see, the point of a miracle is really to, to demonstrate who he is. This is especially true in light of John's purpose statement. You remember this, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that is, the signs are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Expect me to repeat that over and over and over again. John is trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and that we ought to believe in him. Which is exactly what happens in verse 11. He manifests his glory. They see who he is. And his disciples believed in him. The, the disciples put their faith in him as a result of seeing Jesus turn the water into wine. This gospel contains many signs. We need to remind ourselves that these are not mere miracles. They are miracles, but there's something else attached to them. John has in mind something more. These signs are intended to, to point beyond themselves to the person working these signs. To demonstrate that Jesus is who he says he is. And that faith or belief in him is the only ethical response. It's an, it's an issue of ethics. It's what's at stake here. To witness, to hear of this sign and not to believe is an act of rebellion and sin. Yes, it's true that all of us fall short, that we've committed sins against a holy God. That is absolutely true. We've told a lie. We've broken a promise. Indeed, we have. But the greatest sin is to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, to, to see a miracle performed, a sign, and to not believe. That is the greatest assault against God. God in the flesh come performing a sign and to not believe. I can't think of more open-handed sin than that. And so unbelief is an ethical issue. Unbelief is a sin. If you don't believe, you're in sin because of your unbelief. I would say that's the, the greatest sin that you're committing in this moment is that you haven't believed. And if you can hear my voice, you have the news. You have the good news of salvation. You have to take that news and believe it so that you'll have eternal life. Amen? Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, it doesn't matter, whoever, Jew or Gentile or anyone, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have what? Eternal life. Everlasting life. You might say it this way. The greatest crime that you can commit against this is to not believe. There's no greater crime. It's to not believe. We have one more thing to address, and that is the symbolism of the sign. The symbolism of the sign. 
It's often the case that this miracle is given so much symbolism that the historical facts fade into nothing, that we kind of allegorize the whole thing. I don't want to do that, and I don't think that's a good approach. However, I do think there, are some, there is some symbolism to be drawn out from this text. Now, we can't miss the fact, in saying that, we can't miss the fact that the, the disciples were not impressed by some obscure, deeper meaning. Jesus didn't unpack some secret meaning here. Really, what they were impressed with was the fact that it was water, and then it was wine. It's that simple. That's miraculous. And so they looked at Jesus, and they believed. That's very simple. What Jesus did was contrary to nature. This is true, yet we know that signs for John do oftentimes carry some kind of symbolism, some symbols here. We also know that John's gospel is deeply theological. I've already tried to demonstrate that a little bit with the the Genesis allusions, the opening chapter of Genesis and the, the picture that's given here through this opening section in John. So we ask, is there any symbolism to be found in the story? Well, I believe there is. If we return to verse 6, we discover that these six water jars are made from stone. This is verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. John makes clear, he says that. Why, why does he do that? Why does he include that information? Well, I think it's a clue, the symbol of a story. We might say that the, the water found in the stone pots, let me back up. The, the, and explain, I, I, I missed that. The, the stone jars were used instead of the clay because the stone was more impervious than clay. The, the stone, the clay jars would decay, but stone to the Jew wouldn't. And so eventually the clay pot would be destroyed, but a stone one would not be destroyed. That's why the Jews used that for the rites of purification. So what's the point? Well, these stone pots and their stated purpose for Jewish purification provides a clue to one of the symbols of the story. We might say that the water found in the stone pots represents the old order of Jewish law and custom, and the fact the wine is drawn from such jars means that something better is upon us. As it says in chapter 1, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ. It may even be that John intends for us to see this entire scene in light of the Old Testament promises that Messiah would make the mountains drip with wine. You can write down Amos 9 verse 14. Even the wedding banquet is a picture of the future. Tom Schreiner adds, it is highly significant that in John's gospel, Jesus' first miracle took place at a wedding which anticipates the eschatological or last day's banquet where well-aged wine is enjoyed and death is wiped out forever. So this opening miracle is, a, is again, a, a symbol of a, of a great banquet that's coming. I don't think it's insignificant that that's happening here, that those symbols are here. Jesus is replacing the Jewish law with something. There's a new covenant that's happening, and this miracle represents it. And also, there's a wedding banquet that's coming. So here at the beginning, there's a wedding banquet, and at the end, there will be a wedding banquet. Now, this is a a deeply theological interpretation, but I believe there's also another symbolism at work here in this text, and it has to do with joy. 
It has to do with joy. Psalm 104, verse 15 says that God provides wine to gladden the heart of men. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. There's a very interesting passage in Judges 9, 13, where the grapevine speaks and says, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men? In the Jewish mind, wine was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol of happiness. When Mary says they have no wine, what she is saying is they have no joy. The tool that was, that was definely used in this culture to celebrate and to, 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 to find joy is, is gone. They have no wine. They have no joy. It's gone. Here we have one of the most precious and important moments in a couple's life. Again, a wedding banquet. All, all of their life is, is looking forward to this moment. And the wine's gone. The joy has run out. Now, we do have to say something about wine in these days, biblical times. The wine in the Bible is not parallel to the wine of our day. Wine was diluted with water between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength, which would be less than a beer. So this isn't the wine that we drink today. Highly diluted. Undiluted wine, which would be the strength of wine today, was viewed as strong drink, of which Scripture cautions us against. We must say this to confirm that when the Bible speaks of wine and the joy it brings, it's not speaking of the wine of our day. Nor is it giving license for drunkenness or gluttony. Scripture cautions us against the dangers of alcohol in many places. Our point here is simply that wine was associated with joy in the Jewish mind. Kent Hughes helps us to get to the point. Jesus was saying that he brings joy to life. And that joy and the joy he gives is abundant and overflowing. And you might say it comes at the end. Galatians 5:22 says, "But the fruit of the spirit is a lot of things, but it is joy." Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Christianity is not a religion that removes the natural joys of life. It is a religion that lifts them up and makes them all the more enjoyable. In some ways, this is depicted in our story. An event of great significance is taking place. It is a place in which great joy is found on this earth. You might say the greatest joy is to be found at a wedding. Yet, yet what? Even a wedding is given to the frailty of life. Poor planning. Somebody knocked over a jar. I don't know. But it's given to the frailty of life. No matter how much you plan. The wine runs out. And it's Christ that takes this great event and makes it even higher. Scripture says that Christ was a man of sorrows. In fact, he was. He went to the cross. No doubt he knew about sorrow, but the tenor of his life was joy. Certainly there are times in our lives that the grace of God seems far off, 
But overall, our lives are filled with joy. Kent Hughes again, although the natural wines of life tend to lose their sparkle, the wine Christ gives, the joy we find in him increases as life goes on. Jesus is always giving us something better, and our taste is constantly being refined. This is the promise of growth. If I can dare to speak of my wife without tears in my eyes, we celebrated our 20th anniversary this weekend. And let me tell you, the wine is sweet. And it gets sweeter. I know it does. That's what life in Christ is. If you're a new believer, take heart. Christ has much in store for you. If you're an old believer, take heart. Christ still has more in store for you. There is but a wine you have still to taste. I believe there are joys in Christ that even meet us, and I know you've seen this, even meet us in our final breath. So the saying is always true. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'll leave you with a poem. It's fitting, right? T.H. Allen. Leave the miracle to him. Whatsoever he bids you, do it, though you may not understand. Yield to him complete obedience. Then you'll see his mighty hand. Fill the water pots with water. Fill them to the very brim. He will honor all your trusting. Leave the miracle to him. O ye Christians, learn the lesson. Are you struggling all the way? Cease your trying. Change to trusting. Then you'll triumph every day. Whatsoever he bids you, do it. Fill the water pots to brim. But remember, tis his battle. Leave the miracle to him. If I might dare to write a closing stanza. One more thing you must remember as to the coming days you enter, that Christ's supply will always render lasting joy and peace forever. Here is a promise Christ has given. Now draw some out, that as our days collect in number, the wine he offers will only ever increase in sparkle and in splendor. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful you can turn water into wine. What a glorious reality. You did it in the hills of Cana of Galilee thousands of years ago. And yet your, your promises and your faithfulness is with us to the very end. You are here active in our lives even in the mundane, the tomorrow morning, the Monday morning. God, I pray that as we close this service, as we sing again of your mercies, that you would continue to move in our hearts, Lord, and transform us into your people, Lord. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen.